Hi there, and welcome to this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire. Well, as I'm speaking to you today, it's Palm Sunday, the time when Christians everywhere remember Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. A day that's so filled with joy and celebration that, as the old song goes, every voice resounds in united acclamation. But of course, that's not the end of the story. This is the message entitled, From Parade to Cross. It is amazing and more than a little unsettling. What a difference five days makes. On Sunday, of course, as we have been talking about this morning, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and made his triumphal entry into the city while riding on the back of, as Luke puts it, a colt that had never been written. And the atmosphere there is, to say the very least, festive. Throngs of people are lining the streets. They're spreading clothes and tree branches across the road to show their adoration, while all the while shouting out their hosannas and crying out with a loud voice, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Philip Yancey writes that though Jesus usually recoiled from such displays of fanaticism, this time he let them yell. And even when the Pharisees, oh, those Pharisees, when even when they became indignant and insisted that Jesus get them to just stop all the noise, Jesus simply answered, I tell you, if these were silent, even the stones would shout out. Historians and biblical scholars suggest that on this day there were likely as many as several hundred thousand pilgrims gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, including, it should be said, so many who knew of Jesus, who knew Jesus well, and who had followed him from Galilee, as well as others, we believe, that came from Bethany, who were still reeling over the recent miracle of Lazarus, the man they knew, Lazarus being raised from the dead. And this is to say nothing of all the children that were there, dancing around all over, as well as those who were lame and blind, and so many who had just come to this parade, having heard about Jesus, and who were seeking a miracle of their own. Let's also not forget that this Palm Sunday also was rife with social and political undertones. Indeed, every shout of Hosanna that day, which, by the way, means God saves, was a proclamation of God's power that was unfolding at that very moment. It was a proclamation of the fulfillment of God's promised coming of a Messiah. They were shouting, they were celebrating, could it be now that this was a moment at long last of vindication for God's people Israel? To quote Philip Yancey once again, it looked for all the world 
as if the king had arrived in force to claim his rightful throne. And yet, even as the parade was happening, with all the celebration, all the joy, all the shouting, we need to understand that there was growing resentment from the Roman legions and the religious leadership of the day. Both groups who saw Jesus' arrival and great popularity amongst the people as a threat not only to their respective authorities, but as an affront to the proper order of things. And this concern was not calmed by the fact that as Jesus draw near to the city, he looked over it and started to weep. He predicted its destruction as he cried. And as I said to you earlier, this was only the beginning. The Gospels basically tell the same story of the week to come. They differ in some of their interpretations of events, and they differ a little bit on a timeline. But as near as we are able to tell, here's how it unfolded. On Monday, after having spent the night back in Bethany, likely at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus returned to his, with his disciples to Jerusalem. Along the way, as they were making their way towards the city, he cursed, he cursed a fig tree, of all things. And he cursed it because it had failed to bear fruit. An act that was considered to represent God's judgment on the spiritually dead leaders of Israel as well as a statement to all those with ears to hear for the need of God's people to cultivate a genuine living faith and to bear spiritual fruit, each one of them on their own. This was all so the day, though once again this might have happened Sunday afternoon, but it could have happened on Monday and likely did. This was the day that Jesus cleared the temple and condemned those who were selling things there. And he said, quite angrily in fact, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now this was an action that most certainly did not go unnoticed by the religious uprights. On Tuesday, once again, Jesus and his disciples left Bethany and the house of Lazarus and returned to Jerusalem. And this time, when they passed the now withered fig tree, Jesus spoke to them about the importance of true faith. Now, we're also told that all through that day, Jesus was at the temple and he was teaching the people, telling them the good news of God's kingdom. And also that with every teaching, the religious leaders were becoming more and more agitated, to put it mildly, agitated and upset that Jesus appeared to them to be establishing himself as a spiritual authority. And so they figured they would ambush Jesus. They hoped that they would trip him up with loaded questions regarding the law, questions that were designed that either get Jesus to speak blasphemy, in which case they could immediately arrest him, or else 
that would cause him to answer in such a way that he would be immediately discredited amongst the people. Either way, they reasoned, they would be rid of this rebel Jesus. But it was not to be. Again and again, Jesus evaded their spiritual traps. And then, oh, then, he passed judgment on their hypocrisy, their impurity in faith, and their lawlessness. We're also told that Jesus and his disciples then went to the Mount of Olives and speaking largely in parables, prophesied the the destruction of Israel and the end of the age. It's also believed that somewhere in that day, Judas slipped away from the group and went to the Sanhedrin, which is the high court of Israel, and sought to negotiate a price to betray Jesus. We really don't know much about Wednesday, except for the fact that after three days now of hard teaching and constant confrontation with the chief priests and the scribes of the temple, Jesus and his disciples, likely back in Bethany again, rested. Rested in anticipation of the Passover feast the next day. However, it's also on Wednesday, at least according to Matthew, that Jesus warned his disciples of what was to come, that within two days, the Son of Man would be handed over to be crucified. It was also the time when a woman, perhaps Mary or perhaps not, anointed Jesus' head with costly ointment in preparation for his burial. And then there was Thursday, and as we all know, things began to take a somber turn. Though at first it really doesn't seem like it's going to be that way, the day begins with Jesus sending Peter and John ahead to the upper room in Jerusalem to make preparations for the Passover feast, to do all things according to faith and time-honored tradition. It's also the time then when, when that evening after sunset, in a humbling act of servitude, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, asking them, do you know what I am doing for you? And then gives them a new commandment, a mandate, if you will, to love one another as I have loved you. At the Passover feast itself, Jesus breaks bread. He gives it to his disciples around the table and he says, this bread, it represents the body broken for them. And then the cup, which he says to the disciples, represents his blood. Blood that is about to be shed in sacrifice. A a covenant, a new covenant, freeing them and us all from sin and death. He also tells his disciples at this Passover feast, the celebration, that one of them at that table was about to betray him. Which, of course, the disciples immediately deny, not me. No, no, not me. But when Peter protests, Jesus responds by saying, Peter, Peter, you will deny me not once, but three times. 
Then after supper, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus spends his time in prayer and in true spiritual agony. So much so that we're told that the beads of sweat on Jesus' brow had become like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is also where his disciples, who were exhausted from sorrow, were told, failed to stay awake even for a single hour. And finally, what Jesus told them would happen, did happen, with a kiss. Judas betrays Jesus to the authorities, and Jesus is arrested and brought to trial to the Sanhedrin. It seems as though, at least to me at that moment, time stands still. Though in truth, things move very, very quickly from here. Thursday becomes Friday. Shouts of Hosanna are quickly and cruelly replaced by shouts for his crucifixion. And now Jesus. Jesus has gone from these shouts of acclamation from the pinnacle of glory being shouted in joy by throngs of people just five days before. Having been said, that this is the one who has come in the name of the Lord. Now he's at the pits of death's own dark tomb. It's Friday, and now we're watching helplessly as soldiers spit on Jesus, as they torment him, as they mock him, and as a whip his back repeatedly and then later striking him on his head with a reed that that they had perversely thought could be a makeshift scepter, a royal scepter. And then they pierced that head with a crown of thorns and they mocked him yet again and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. They sent him off to crucify him, and he's forced to carry his own cross, the very instrument of his death. (coughs) And he went along many of the same streets that he rode in on, the back of the colt, before finally they reached Golgotha, a place aptly named as the place of the skull, and there, there he was crucified. A death sentence reserved for the lowest of the low, the worst criminal of those who have committed the greatest offense that he was nailed to the cross and forced over the course of several hours to die a slow, excruciating death in the hot sun while hanging on the cross. And in about the ninth hour, Round three in the afternoon, we reckon. After having spoken around seven times, beginning with Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, and finally saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus breathed his last breath. 
And he died. It is amazing, is it not? And more than a little unsettling, don't you think? What a difference five days can make. You know, friends, I have always loved Palm Sunday. Not only does it hold special significance for me in this church, because it was Palm Sunday that I began as your pastor here, but it is, in fact, one of the most joyful days of the church year. It is filled to overflowing with praise and proclamation, and well, it should be. The late Peter Gomes used to actually said it very well when he referred to this day as the, quote, festival frenzy of the palms, the marvelous chaos, which we organize each year as a festive dress rehearsal for Easter triumph, unquote. Friends, I can't imagine coming to church this morning and not waving palm branches in the air, not singing a verse or two of the palms as we do. But having said all that, I also have to confess to you that, <clears throat> that I also struggle a bit with Palm Sunday. Because it is, in all honesty, our temptation. It represents our temptation as Christians and as the church to leave this Palm Sunday parade, go home, go about our business for the week, and then go straight ahead to Easter Sunday and resurrection joy. But you know what? As much as we would love to move directly from singing out our hosannas this week and shouting our alleluias next Sunday, the fact is we cannot, we cannot avoid what happens in between. And what happens in between is the cross. There's a solemn side of Palm Sunday, Peter Gomes goes on to say, and it is almost unbearable in its anguish and its pathos. Here it is that we confront the dark side of the human experience. It is when we are forced to cry, crucify, crucify, right along with the biblical mob. And it becomes painfully close. In other words, friends, and you hear me say this a lot, you can't get to Easter without first living out those Five long, slow, agonizing, closing in days that lead us inevitably to Golgotha and the sight of Jesus there hanging on the cross and dying. <clears throat> I know. I'm aware. The Jesus we want to see this morning is the Jesus who is for us gentle shepherd, great physician, and master teacher. I know. <laughs> I can admit this too. I want to go back to that sweet little baby born in the manger of Bethlehem. I want to smell the hay. I want to see the farm animals all around. I prefer 
We all prefer, I think, to remain with a kind and gentle Jesus, the, the one who is bringing healing and wholeness and gentle blessings. And today we really love if we could linger with the king who has ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, that we could keep on waving palms and be as children as we dance and sing and cheer. But friends, you know what? If we really want to know Jesus, if we are going to forge a relationship with him, if we are to truly receive the gift he is offering us of life abundant and eternal, we need to go to the cross. It's important, I think, for us to remember that, that none of what we have been talking about today happened by accident. It, nor was any of it instantaneous, nor is it or should be considered to be merely the result of historical happenstance. It was and is something that was ever and always meant to be and was from the very beginning set in motion by Jesus himself. It was Jesus' intention for Palm Sunday to become Monday, Thursday, to become Good Friday. The cross was his goal all along. As I heard one biblical commentator say this week, it was Jesus himself who started the ball rolling on Palm Sunday. And eventually, on Good Friday, that ball rolled and crushed him. And it's agonizing. Agonizing to behold, no matter how many times we hear this story. But it, it was what needed to happen. But the question is, the question always is for us, why? Why did Jesus go so determinedly from parade to cross? Because, you see, Good Friday is not the end. Palm Sunday, as I said, is not the end of the story, but neither is Good Friday. Nor is it the end of God's intention for the world and its people that God so loves. As it turns out, God, made real to us in the person of Jesus Christ, is literally dying to love us. From parade to cross and then to the empty tomb, there is love, real love, divine love, love that heals, love that redeems, love that saves, love that transforms, and love that gives us life. And that, my dear friends, is what we need to take with us as we leave the parade and make our way to the cross on this Holy Week that's just now unfolding. The truth that Jesus willingly, intently, and lovingly went to the cross for us. He went there to offer up his life as the perfect sacrifice taking on all of our failure and our guilt and our unworthiness and our sin as his own. 
laying down his life for yours and mine. The Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. He went to the cross to release God's forgiveness into our world. He went to the cross to take away our fear and to give you and me eternity and along the way to give us peace that surpasses all of our our human understanding. He went to the cross so that we might know for ourselves the peace that calms us even as we are feeling terrorized by what's around us and horrified by what's within us. Jesus went to the cross to die so that you and I can live. And it is for that reason, beloved, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so then, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled, From Parade to Cross. It was recorded during our April the 10th Palm Sunday service of worship at East Congregational Church in Concord, New Hampshire, where we gather for worship every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at the church on 51 Mountain Road. Now, if you're looking for a place to worship on Easter Sunday, or any Sunday for that matter, we'd love to have you join us. We are a small, mighty, but very welcoming congregation, and I think you'll be glad you came. And with that, we come to the close of this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, and I thank you for listening today. So until next time, may God bless you with a great day every day. We'll talk to you soon.